Welcome to Coding the Future with Dr. Sharon Jones. This is an education-based show focusing on tech careers and how to incorporate the important aspects of technology in your current work. Each show brings you closer to tech success. Now, here's your host, Dr. Sharon Jones. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Coding the Future with Dr. Sharon Jones. I am your host, Dr. Sharon Jones. It seems repetitive every time I say that, but it is kind of fun to say that. I am your host of the show, Coding the Future, and I am so excited and honored that you have joined us again for another week. This show aims to provide opportunity, conversations with experts, action items all around understanding this great big world of tech, how we're using it, how we're applying it, and finding a way for each of us to find our own role and space in the tech sphere. Today, I am really excited because this is the first opportunity that I have had to actually interact with many of you that, that are the audience. And I received this wonderful email from Joel Rodvani asking, um, could he come on and share his story and his excitement around the same interests that he and I both share in terms of STEM education, computer science, tech, and all the amazing opportunities that we can provide for our children as we continue to navigate this new space of the tech revolution and digital learning, virtual learning, navigating what it means to create with a computer and not just consume. And so... I am so excited to talk to him about his journey, what he's offering now, and how in the future we may be even to collaborate because what's really amazing about this is that Joel is calling us from an international location, and I'll let him share that information, and what is the amazement of where we stand today just even over the past six months. You know, for a long time, we used to say uh, Google has become a part of our vernacular on a regular uh, basis, but now we can say Zoom has. And he and I are connecting today via Zoom, and um, I think that's such a powerful piece for us to be able to connect and chat in two different parts of the world, two different time zones, but yet still be able to share our love and excitement around STEM education and computer science. So, Joel, welcome to the show, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Sharon, for that uh, wonderful introduction. Uh, yep. My, as you said, my name is Joel Radvani. I'm an expat living in Basel, Switzerland. <laughs> I've been here for just a little more than nine years now. Uh, I moved here as what uh, is locally known here as a trailing spouse. And if uh, uh, you're not familiar with what that is, uh, essentially it's uh, a spouse that follows uh, the other spouse uh, because they've managed to uh, secure a job that uh, has advanced their career. And uh, it came along at uh, a time in our lives as a family and a couple where uh, my career was on the decline and hers was on the ascent. And so it was just a really uh, amazing opportunity uh, to, well, go live in Europe. Uh, I actually was born in Europe, but at a young age, uh, immigrated to the United States. Uh, I grew up uh, both in the Midwest, but mostly on the East Coast. We can talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, and uh, for me, it wasn't such a like remote or crazy idea to go live in Europe for a while. Uh, for my wife, who was born in the States and, of course, had uh, traveled and seen parts of Europe, uh, mostly as a tourist, uh, I think for her, it was a bit more of a romantic idea of like, oh my gosh, living in uh, Europe, isn't that great? 
but uh, after having lived here for a few years, uh, we actually fell in love with the place. And uh, it uh, has been an amazing place to raise children. And uh, of course, it doesn't hurt that they have uh, pretty much a postcard, uh, picture-perfect places to see within, uh, well, let's just say bicycle riding distance. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You know, even as a kid myself, I, of course, you always sort of fantasize about what it would be like to go and live and work in Europe. And it's so different than the States and the, and the way in which their culture is. What on average is the temperature there in Switzerland? <laughs> I'm sure you get um, this question quite, a lot. Um, yeah, you know, it's quite temperate. Um, yeah. Obviously, if you're up in the mountains, uh, which is uh, sort of the stereotype of Switzerland, uh, it's probably already covered in snow. Uh, If you're uh, at the elevations that you think of when you think of Swiss uh, mountains, uh, your resort areas like St. Moritz, uh, Zermatt, uh, uh, or the the French Alps, uh, yeah, there will be snow there by early October, typically, and it will last until April. Uh, but uh, in places like uh, Zurich, Geneva, and uh, Basel, which are in either river or lake valleys, uh, it's uh, not dissimilar from what one would experience on the east coast of the U.S. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I wouldn't, I will show my ignorance and not really knowing exactly kind of where, you know, thinking about that. But if I, if I can envision it on the map, it's, you know, equal in terms of latitude of where it is on the East Coast versus where you are in Switzerland. I just pulled up the map. I just want everyone to know that. Because you know in your head, you've learned about geography and how it works, but I just pulled it up to see the difference. And that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and to place it a bit more specifically, geographically speaking, we're Central Europe, right? So we're surrounded on, on uh, four sides by uh, Italy, Austria, uh, Germany and France. Amazing. Uh, and uh, where Basel happens to be is tucked into the northwest corner of the country. So uh, in the morning, if I want, uh, I can take a uh, bicycle ride and in 10 minutes be in either Germany or France. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, it's great to go to France to shop for croissant in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, yeah, if you want a decent bratwurst or um, actually the, the, the German region in this part of, uh, uh, of the country on the border is, uh, and, and France as well, is quite famous for its wine and for its agriculture. So um, yeah, there's a, an abundance of, uh, of good produce, uh, very seasonal. Um, I would say that uh, since you're sort of at, uh, pointing out cultural sort of differences, um, yeah, we do have more seasonality in food. This time of year, for example, it's um, definitely a lot of uh, root vegetables and cabbage <laughs> and Brussels sprouts. Uh, <laughs> My favorite, Brussels like sprouts, thing. love them. You are in the right place, um, uh, whereas you wouldn't see those things uh, really into the spring or summer, but then you'd get things like uh, asparagus and fruit, of course, and tomatoes. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, and uh, one thing that was actually... Um, I lived for quite a long stretch in New York city. And the interesting thing about New York city is of course, it's super exciting, very dense in terms of culture. Um, 
uh, an amazing place to live also, but there's not this like seasonal cadence necessarily of mm -hmm. uh, things like festivals and um, agriculture, which is very prominent here. Um, you pretty much people set their lives and their clocks by what the nearest upcoming festival is like your winter markets or your, uh, spring markets or your uh, uh, harvest festival markets. Uh, and uh, of course, in the winter, we've had fondue season. In the summer, we have asparagus season. And, oh uh, and there's literally a festival for everything. And um, yeah, after living here for nine years, uh, it's kind of interesting. You start to like set your life by that clock. And uh, so there's always something to look forward to. Um, and it also kind of is a reminder of the time of year that you're in, where uh, in a lot of the more metropolitan places that I've lived in before in the past, like, I um, shouldn't say that things necessarily run together, but I mean, you definitely know when it's Christmas time in New York, but sure, outside of, of course, that, it yeah. feels mm -hmm. pretty much uh, like any other part of the year, uh, whether it was spring or fall. I was, um, my eyes kind of lit up when you said that there was a fondue festival. I mean, <laughs> listen, that just, and the whole thing that it's all centered around food, which happens to be at the core. I mean, I love all things food and trying, you know, different types of food. And I'm a big vegetable person over fruits yeah. most of the time. But I, I just love that, that, that um, things are centered around food that just is very yeah. delightful. It's a big part of life here, definitely, yeah. and yeah, and it, and it definitely stems from the agriculture. Uh, sure, you're you're never very far from a from a, a field where you can see the cows if it's the uh, the warmer part of the year. Uh, sorry, if it's the cold part of the year, uh, and then in the summertime they take the cows up to the mountains uh, and you can see them up there. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, definitely a big part of life here and then it's a big part of my life too so maybe other people don't notice it as much but uh yeah I'm, I'm a bit of a foodie myself so uh uh it's something that i i definitely notice and look forward to in terms of what what's going to be available well you know i as i mentioned i said i like food as well and i've used it a lot in my teaching practices to mm -hmm. talk about how food is very much like variables and data how you can have mm -hmm individual elements of food, but they come together to create this wonderful recipe or new dish that you're going to try. Like, you know, it may be just plain Brussels sprouts, but when you add some balsamic vinegar and a little bit of salt and pepper and you roast them, it's a whole different experience than just the Brussels sprout alone. Um, I yeah. actually wrote an entire book on the recipe behind data <laughs> analytics in terms of how to compare individual foods and how they're, like I said, individual variables and then come together to create something completely different, just like we do when we're thinking about taking individual data points and then bringing those together to ultimately make decisions to drive business or our personal lives forward, which I want to talk a little bit about your background because I'm, I'm really excited to, to dig into the work that you're doing now with, with children and, and your and your organization, but you also have had a very uh, robust career in tech and fintech and mm -hmm. in finance. So tell me a little bit about, and, and I know that you have done coding in your past. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that journey. Like how has yeah. that brought you to, and we'll dig into the business a little bit more, but tell me a little about this background and how you sure. really ended up diving into tech and finance and all right. that good jazz. 
Right, right, right. So for me, it was quite memorable the first time I saw a computer and saw what could be done with a computer. Um, we were fortunate enough at the time to be living uh, in uh, central New Jersey in a town called Highland Park that had a fairly forward thinking public school system in having um, participated in an educational distribution program that Apple Computer was running at the time. And I don't know if you remember, but in the early 80s, um, and I'm for sure, like uh, the, the recent generations of, of young people getting involved with tech, ed tech, or in, uh, tech in general, programming wise, uh, won't remember that uh, Apple Computer for a while there um, actually licensed uh, their Apple II computers to be built by Bell and Howell. And um, they, they were, they looked exactly like an Apple computer and functioned just like an Apple II computer, but they were black as opposed to that cream color mm. that the Apple II computers came in. Yeah. And um, they did that so that their education partners, like schools, for instance, can essentially get them uh, at, at the non-branded price, right? I, I imagine that was pretty much the reason why you only saw the black Apple computers in places like Highland Park. And then, of course, when we would sneak into the Rutgers University computer labs to get some gaming time on their computers. They were also the black Apple computers. Um, and looking back on that now as a business person, I'm pretty sure that, that was, there was some kind of strong education incentive going on with that, that version of the computer. Yeah. But uh, uh, I walked into uh, math class uh, in uh, sixth grade and uh, my teacher, Miss Marshall, uh, was sitting in front of an Apple II computer and demonstrating how you could program basically Pong in just a few minutes um, with an Apple II computer right there in the classroom. And uh, I was like, I was, I was smitten. I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. And, uh, and I'd, I'd seen video games before, but the idea that you could actually do it yourself and it could, it's something that you could possibly even have in your house was amazing. Mm -hmm. I thought, Wow. And, uh, and then she went and demonstrated a few other features, but really just the basic graphic features and a few lines of basic code. And uh, yeah, I was hooked from that point forward. Um, I spent the better time of uh, middle school and high school after that uh, collecting video games on floppy disks. And there was a little nascent culture there of uh, nerdy teens who would... Uh, uh, share cracked software, uh, that is to say copyable software. And, uh, you know, we would have our binders filled with games and we would gather at each other's houses and make mm -hmm. copies and then, and then just spend the rest of the weekend playing the games uh, that we'd uh, copied from one another. Um, and then, of course, we did spend a lot of time trying to tinker and code a little bit. And uh, as I mentioned before, we lived in a school system that, uh, or in a community that had a school system that, was aggressively forward looking with this. And by the time I was in 11th grade, they were actually offering a machine language course uh, in assembly, using assembly 6502 for the Apple computer. And uh, we had a full semester long program where we could learn how to code in machine language. And for us nerds, <laughs> um, this was awesome because now we knew how the games that we really liked worked as opposed to like the, the janky ones that we could make ourselves using right. basic. <laughs> sure. um, and, and it, it was quite interesting because to, 
to un- to learn to understand how um, those games were written uh, in machine language and to start to see how that machine language work, you had to also start to understand what the limitations of computing power were at that time, which were quite significant. Um, and um, you couldn't avoid starting to learn about things like how does a microprocessor work? Uh, why is there 48K of RAM, right? right. Instead of unlimited RAM, right? right. And, and so you have to start to understand like, oh, RAM is really expensive, right? Clock speed is really expensive, right? Mm-hmm. And like um, you, you had to start to like actually come to appreciate how um, the really great game programmers of that era managed to tackle those challenges to like be super creative, not just uh, in terms of like, uh, game design and graphics, because those resources were far from unlimited relative to what they are today. Oh, correct, um, right. And they had to be great coders. They had to be great, like, um, engineers, really. And they had to understand the hardware first that they were working with and the limitations of it. Well, there's a couple of things you've mentioned, I think, that are really important. And, and I think about this often because we've had such quick and I want to say quick because when you think about when we were younger and and I was having this conversation with uh, with another young person the other day about how much things have changed from you know really for me the pivotal change point was with the iPod that came out and and moved into the iPhone and how storage and RAM and ROM and all those became very different and then of course the uh, floppy disk became obsolete and then your CD began to come obsolete but what I like about what you're saying is you saw a very distinct difference between, and I love that you said you saved your games on a floppy disk because I did the same, <laughs> except for I was saving my first web page on five different floppy disks. And then, oh, wow. you know, but, and I can, I have this visual of you having a binder with the floppy yeah. disk stored in it because I had the same with CDs, you know, CD-ROMs for all the right. things that we did. But you saw that that change really and yeah. seeing the difference between putting that information on a floppy disk to transitioning to really learning a machine programming language. And yeah. that became very clear to you, the power and the creativity that you could have in learning to code and use a computer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and uh to elaborate on that um i i would i will just say and maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit here but um a key part of the courses that we now offer and this is a, true across the board from the youngest kids that we work with to the oldest kids and even adults that we work with uh some of them uh, who've also been on that journey uh of seeing the transition in terms of what a computer means, but uh, younger adults, uh, I suppose, uh, for them, it, it's been a, uh, it's been an important part for us that what we deliver, or we really endeavor to uh, deliver, is to peel away that consumer layer that every single device that a kid now touches or a young adult touches, um, because it obscures uh, some of that amazing stuff going on underneath right yeah. like so mm-hmm. um and not to knock it man i'm a huge fan of android i'm a huge fan of ios uh amen uh, me too yeah but and and 
I can't imagine like running an enterprise, much less my life, <laughs> uh, without the assistance of those devices today. Uh, and right. as you rightly pointed out, um, here we are, age of Zoom, right? I'm sitting in my car in Switzerland, and you're <laughs> uh, somewhere on the East Coast in the U.S., and uh, and we're having a conversation that's pretty much seamless, uh, spanning an ocean. Uh, yeah, however, it, it, it just gives me goosebumps to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and, keep going, and keep going. <laughs> but, yeah, but to get, uh, but it, it's, it, I think it's also important, even for kids starting out and seeing a computer for the first time today, to understand that uh, layer underneath uh, all of that amazing technology that's been accumulated or that has cumulatively improved uh, over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, that that's so easy to take for granted, and you can go through life not understanding how any of this stuff works, and that's part of the blessing of having the, this technology. But on the other hand, like what we really try to focus on is to like help, help kids uh, and the people who participate in our programs have a deeper understanding of the things going on that make it possible. And uh, yeah, that's a good starting point for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. And we are going to dig into more about what you are providing and, and opportunities for, for young people that your organization is doing but you brought up a very valuable point, and I say this very often, and this goes for adults and, and kids, because even though, and I, I would say we are probably in a similar age group, you know, that level of even abstraction that we have become accustomed to, we can often mm. forget about what is the back end piece of how this this runs. And I often say that that is really what our mission is now is that we have technology now that we can consume and we can use. Now we really want to show how we can create with that technology and go back a little bit and, and show underneath the hood so that there is some understanding and engineering on the children's part and adults part to understand why this phone does all this amazing things that, right. that we can now do. Um, I think that's really important to to share and to continue to teach even with our level of abstraction that we have with tech. I think we still have to have a level of understanding, baseline coding, baseline parts of a computer slash phone slash piece of technology. I just think that's mm -hmm. still a really important piece because then we don't Here's the other thing. We're not relying on if it breaks, we don't know what to do. We can figure out how to fix it. Yeah, there's definitely uh, an instinct you can develop, right? By starting with uh, understanding all of the pieces of an operating system, even if you don't necessarily know it, of course, impossible, code line by code line, right? Like uh, um, uh, working with uh, operating systems from the perspective of doing a STEM program or uh, doing something at a high school level or even at the university or graduate level uh, will help you develop an instinct for how these things work. And uh, yeah, as you said, like, uh, um, and maybe even it, it, it's not just instinct, but a comfort level. So yeah, you're not you know, so scared about yeah. if something goes wrong, you don't yeah. know what to do, right? You have a yeah, you don't problem solve yeah or throw the phone at the wall or something yeah you don't want to do that um no, and uh and uh yeah of course uh the, I'm, I'm sure you've done this when you want to frustrate a person you just say well it's just doing what it's being told to do right like, <laughs> yes 
<laughs> well, you also mentioned um, that I, which I think is really interesting because I had the same pivotal moment myself. I did not engage in as, as much of the technology classes when I was your age. It wasn't quite as it was, there wasn't as many offered in, in mm-hmm. where I grew up, but I can recall the first moment that I learned how to program and figured out that instantaneous, I don't know, it's, it's like that empowerment of being able to tell the computer to do something. Because like you just said, it doesn't have yeah. a human brain. We have to tell it everything we want it to do. And when you do, and that piece of technology returns back to you what you input, it's, it's really exciting. And it brings yeah. a new level of confidence in your ability, I think, not only to problem solve or, or to create and, and, and learn more, but... I mean, now this piece of tech is doing something to make your life easier. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, and yeah, as I said, it's, it's quite amazing the, the, the power of something like a smartphone, right? You, mm-hmm. you, can, you can organize your life in the palm of your hand. You can game. Uh, you can uh, communicate. Um, and uh, actually, one of the things that I really wanted to talk, talk to you about um, uh, echoes this idea that uh, I expressed before about how incredible it is that we're having this conversation seamlessly between two continents uh, mm-hmm. and how easy it was to set up. Um, it's it uh, the the power of this technology it is uh, is such that uh, it lends itself to becoming easily cynical, right? Like you take it for granted um, all the things that you can do with it, and you kind of. Uh, you grow accustomed to that and you sort of start assuming that many things in life should be so simple and so instantaneous um, where um, they're not. And uh, the challenge as a STEM educator definitely is to get kids to slow down when they're Mm -hmm. used to playing two to three minute game sessions, you know, for eight hour stretches. Right. (laughs) And um, it's, it's interesting to, to see how that phenomenon actually, um, is now seems to be playing out in the behavior of adults as well. And yet, and yet, and despite that, as easy as it is to become cynical around these things, um, some of the best things that have come from um, my experience as a STEM teacher and in terms of the uh, life cycle of our organization so far have been completely the result of and would have been impossible without things like social media. So let me give you an example. Um, when we got into 3D printing about five, four years ago, um, uh, one of the things that we wanted to do with it was to try to uh, uh, print a robotic kit by ourselves. And there was a vendor in, in the, um, at the time who would sell a kit that was essentially the guts of the robot. And then they would distribute the uh, STL files, the stereolithography files, mm-hmm. um, for free you bought you buy their kit for 10 bucks right and basically you can print the robot parts all of the external parts of the robot on your own uh with your own printer right. so um i was like well this is great like i mean we can basically buy a 10 dollar kit have the kids build the robot and teach them about 3d printing and assemble the parts and like it, it just had a really long sort of like learning path and education path that was very cross-disciplinary in terms of like fabrication and, um, you know, electronics and soldering. And then finally the coding part. I mean, 
really had sort of like this Frankenstein kind of storyline to it, right? That is easy to sell as an educator to kids in a pretty wide spectrum of ages. So we started printing these and um, uh, we were hired at the time to do a, a week long workshop with a school. And so we had about 40 of them. Um, and after the first day, we realized what the limitations, of course, of 3D printing are, uh, because, of course, not a single pair of robots were uniform in terms of how they, they had been printed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was, of course, four years ago when 3D printing was quite a bit more expensive than it is today. Um, and, yeah, uh, the machines just did not print uniform robots. Well, so what happened? So uh, with the instructors, we were there until, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning, essentially, like, filing and uh, make drilling new screw holes just to make sure that the next day when the kids came in, like they all were kind of at the same point in terms of building these robots that they'd been working so hard on for the last two sessions. Um, and at a certain point, I took a photograph of all the robots like lined up on this assembly line with my instructors, like taking turns doing the different parts of putting these robots together. And I put it on Facebook and, um, this is when the cool part of the story happens. I mean, I'm sure the rest of it was great too, but <laughs> this is really cool. Uh, from a town nearby, just over the border in France, there's another teacher who had been a STEM teacher for about 25 years, saw this photograph and said, I need to come talk to you. And by the time he'd seen the photo, I'd been already starting to run uh, my summer camps here in Switzerland. And uh, so he came to visit, he looked around and he's just said, this is the coolest thing I've seen happening around here. And we've got to be like working on this stuff together. I was like, great. <laughs> I need someone who can help me with 3d printing. Sure. And, uh, if, and this guy is, uh, turns out he's an award-winning uh, STEM instructor from France. He'd been teaching STEM programs to public school kids for 20 plus years. And uh, we've been working together ever since. And, uh, What's great is uh, we'd n we would have never met if it weren't for Facebook. So mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of negativity around social media and the way it impacts society these days. But I have to say, like, without it, I wouldn't have found some of my greatest employees, right? Or would have been involved with, like, the subsequent projects that came uh, out of those relationships, which are, you know, were even more ambitious. And, uh, yeah, so... It, pretty amazing. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing, yeah. And I want to dig into that a little bit more because I'd like to know more about what Tech Labs does and how you took the journey to starting the business and, and providing these opportunities for kids. So stay with us. We're going to be right back after these quick messages. And um, we'll talk with Joel a bit more about how he's created Tech Labs and what that is doing for his uh, community there in Switzerland. So stay with us. We'll be right back. From face-to-face -face training to blended training techniques, the DOT Consulting delivers distinct advantage for organizations looking to grow. We help you invest in technology knowledge through training, experimental learning, and community connections. Employees create an overall collective sharpness, savviness, and greater productivity using technology as a tool, thus increasing the technological speed and quality of the expertise in your organization. The DOT Consulting 
a new level of tech savvy. Visit the dot consulting dot co. The world needs more women with tech skills. At the Dottie Rose Foundation, we encourage, support, and educate girls who have an interest in technology and want to learn how it can be used to enhance their learning and future careers. Our camps demonstrate that most future career paths will benefit from developing a wide range of increasingly important technology and software skills. We accomplish this through mastering computational thinking, boosting self-confidence, and creating new possibilities for each girl. Visit DottieRoseFoundation.org. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Coding the Future with Dr. Sharon Jones. We invite you to connect with the show today by calling in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Sharon at the.consulting.co. Now, back to Coding the Future. Welcome back, everybody, to Coding the Future. We are back with Joel, who is the founder and managing director of Tech Labs in Basel, Switzerland. And I may have said that not exactly correct, Joel, so you can correct me. And we have been having a really incredible conversation around the how his journey in being inspired by technology when he was a young person guided his career into learning more about finance, into an MBA, into when he got married, moving to Switzerland, and how this has completely changed the way in which he has interacted with tech. And so, Joel, I want you to tell us a little bit more about Tech Labs and maybe back it up just a little bit and tell us about how your working journey from um, working in tech and finance led you to want to do something more in terms of helping the next generation love tech the way you do. Right. So uh, I definitely had a circuitous route around technology. Uh, I, I, um, uh, after uh, elementary school, where I described uh, what it was like to have access to uh, computers at a, at a fairly early age, at a time in history when uh, the concept of having computers in the classroom was new, um, through high school, um, uh, actually in my undergraduate career, I studied computer science as a minor, uh, not really thinking that I would get into a career in computers. Uh, I'd done a few odd jobs here and there, typing up people's resumes and things like that, but um, didn't really have any sort of idea what computer science as a career might look like or being a developer uh, uh, might be. Uh, However, after finishing um, my uh, undergraduate studies on the East Coast, uh, it was actually coincident with the 1991 recession. And uh, at the time, I had an aspiration to somehow crack into the world of finance, which, of course, uh, was disastrous considering that the recession of 91, in fact, had hit that uh, industry particularly hard. Uh, But I did have a friend who's father had had a long career in finance and uh, gave me some decent advice, which was, you know, if you really want to get into this um, world of finance, about the only place anything is going on in this country right now is Chicago. Uh, And it just so happens that I had a high school buddy who'd been going to University of Michigan and was also interested in moving to Chicago at the time. Uh, So to cut a long story short, we 
basically packed up a car and moved out there uh, uh, in the summer of 1991. Uh, and after pounding the pavement, I uh, landed a job with a software development company that wrote back office software for brokerage firms. And their hiring decision when it came to me was, you know nothing, and we like that. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, all right. But uh, interestingly, I think this uh, ethos is, if you can call it that, is still alive and well in Silicon Valley and in other developer-type uh, organizations that, uh, as, as a practice, hire young people. Um, they, they will tell you that it's not a bad decision to train in-house someone from scratch if they sort of recognize some sort of affinity or talent for um, uh, coding uh, or being a developer because um, the, the opinion is that, you know, there's a house style and if you've learned that somewhere else, they'll have to unteach it to you first uh, before teaching you what the preferred method of coding uh, and of maintenance and all the other things that go with being a developer um, uh, require. And uh, so they figured I'd convince them that I was nerdy enough and they could probably teach me something and gave me a shot and uh, turned out I was pretty good at it. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about that job was that it was nothing at all like what I thought being a, a programmer or programmer analyst or developer would be. Um, up until then, uh, what I thought of as a program was, as I mentioned earlier, a game. And uh, writing a game and thinking of like trying to impress my friends with games. Uh, and this was absolutely the opposite of that. We wrote programs that essentially generated uh, reports that were thousands and thousands of pages long every single day for brokerage clients uh, of brokerage firms. And um, what was the interesting part of the job um, once I sort of got over the shock of like, God, that's, that stuff sounds so boring <laughs> was that um, uh, I stuck around uh, well, as part of the training, yeah, you had to stick around early. Uh, you had to stick around late uh, for a few nights a week to help support clients. And you really got to see just how much data was being crunched. And mm -hmm. that was really quite eye opening to me. Like as a young person, it's really hard to appreciate, the scale of things, right? Um, and uh, uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about like what it's like to have a computer in your hand that can do everything. Like you can't appreciate the scale of the coding, the hundreds of millions of man hours of coding that went into making that project, uh, that, that object work. Right. Um, and equally it, at the time, it was really hard to imagine um, as a young person, like, uh, what it means to scale something and, and then mm -hmm. also to like how that could be kind of cool to like figure out like, gee, uh, yeah, we have this program, but, um, and it's really, really great, but like, there's no way it'll be able to process these 200,000 trading records that came through in the time that's available. So now we need to sit down and figure out how to do that. And those kinds of puzzles were, were interesting to me. And like uh, the more yeah. I did them, the more I was drawn into uh, like finding it actually quite fascinating and interesting. And, um, and that what, what the outcomes of that uh, in terms of scale is also hard to appreciate. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the, 
specific project that I was working on at the time was quite novel in that we were we had written software that would allow a brokerage firm, which in the early 90s, most brokerage firms um, generated their reports for their clients in each market that they would trade in. So for example, you know, you had Mr. Rockefeller who had an account in New York and an account in London and an account in Australia, right? And maybe he's buying oil futures contracts in all three of those markets, but you would get a report directly from each of those markets by mail. Um, now, of course, Mr. Rockefeller doesn't like that, right? Because he figures his dollar is as good in Australia as it is in London and in New York. And he'd like basically one report from his one broker that's operating in all three places and then be able to use his $1 as collateral for all three of those trades. And that's what we worked on was this cross-border uh, uh, reporting capability, which had a foreign exchange component to it. And it was really amazing because, uh, and this is the part about scaling, right? We suddenly realized that we'd enabled basically companies to really go global with their ability to settle uh, their, tra their transactions for their clients. And it's one thing to, hey, send a sales team to, you know, some un- uh, tapped part of the world, whether you're in finance or, you know, if you're Palantir selling uh, data science services, but uh, it's completely another to actually be able to like make that data become valuable for, for your end client because you're able to integrate um, what the practices are within the business uh, as opposed to just the computing. And that's the part of scaling that was like an aha thing for me like oh mm -hmm. wow like this is how this stuff can impact uh like large organizations and large groups of people not necessarily just in the in the domain of uh, data science uh, so excuse me in, to, in the domain of finance and the most obvious example of that today is is social media right like i mean facebook in, in just a decade right has gone from zero to two billion right or three billion right. whatever the number is today and and that's like kind of amazing and uh, uh, I don't want to take anything away from Mark Zuckerberg, but it's a relatively simple idea, right? <laughs> um, that he, Well, you he know, I think sometimes that's the most, those are the most powerful ideas. To be quite frank yeah. with you, I think yeah. the most successful tech companies usually take an idea that is rather simple and figure out a yeah. way to bring it to the masses at That's a way it. in which they understand. So Facebook yeah. as, well, you mentioned too about the whole concept around mail and having something yeah. mailed to you versus yeah. you being able to develop that piece of technology. And, and the, what I'm really, really thinking about as you're talking is about how you have really stepped through this process of watching technology grow and change over time to really be of a benefit for a business or for personal use. Yeah. Yeah. And if I may just sort of finish up my personal journey yeah. with that, um, uh, after working at that company in Chicago for three years, I moved back to New York to uh, get my graduate degree, uh, thinking once again that I would move uh, into the front office of finance, more into the banking side. And I spent, uh, after my uh, graduate program, uh, uh, let's see, I finished in 96, so about eight years uh, on the trading side of things. But 
by the time I got to the trading floor, even after my graduate degree, it was obvious that the future was in terms of in integrating technology onto the trading desk. And I mean, you couldn't, you can't talk about finance today without also talking about fintech. And especially if you're talking about the world of trading, really, we're talking about data scientists and, and computer programmers sitting in front of computers, essentially babysitting them or, or tweaking the code on them while the computers themselves are doing all of the trading. Um, and even in the late 90s, that, that transition was already like starting to happen. And, and uh, I watched that uh, uh, develop uh, like very, very quickly and, and, and in a very diffuse kind of way, ultimately. Um, and then uh, my last job before transitioning into education was working for a company that provided uh, tools for uh, automated traders. And uh, they had a, a, set, a suite of software and hardware solutions that helped uh, individual traders as well as institutions like banks uh, and hedge funds to automate trading strategies. Uh, and uh, in terms of uh, the, what, what the best way to describe it is uh, maybe you're familiar with the Michael Lewis book, uh, Flash Boys. So that describes very, very well the, the world that I was living in uh, from about uh, 2005 until 2000 and uh, let's say 12. No, I'm not uh, familiar and, with that book, but I just wrote it down oh. because I think I'm going to need to pick that up because no, I have not read yeah. that book. Yeah. So Michael Lewis is a uh, great writer. He's fam most famous book is uh, Liar's Poker. Uh, that was kind of his... Uh, his uh, entry uh, into mm -hmm. uh, writing about finance. And then, uh, of course, he also wrote the book Big Short, which was made into a movie with uh, Brad Pitt uh, yes. and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Norton. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, the other guy. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, and Moneyball, which was also yep. made into a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he's, a, he's an amazing writer. And, and he turns this sort of like, boring finance arcana into really interesting anecdotes uh, and weaves them together really, really well. So it makes it, 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 these books are all very readable, but yeah, if you're familiar with flash boys, then uh, you'd be familiar with what uh, I was experiencing professionally in terms of like this race that had evolved um, to try to be the fastest to deliver a trade. And all of that had to do primarily with technology um, vis-a-vis -vis things like putting servers near the trading engines of exchanges, using microwaves to transmit um, uh, trading information between different uh, geographic markets in the U.S. and globally, um, and then uh, on the software side to reduce the, the software layer uh, latencies to also help uh, customers who were primarily interested in speed by the time I was involved with it in terms of uh, gaining trading advantages over one another. Um, and then the final step of all of this was uh, when I finished uh, working with that company, uh, by then I was already living in Switzerland and I transitioned into becoming a consultant with them. Uh, there came a point at which it was just obvious that we shouldn't there was no need to continue my relationship with them. Um, and I stepped away from that and I spent about a year and a half, possibly two being just a stay at home dad and just casting around with ideas for what to do next. Um, and this was around the time when, whenever we would visit the States, uh, our respective families, um, my kids had become aware of something called Minecraft camp. 
And uh, it's like Minecraft. Yes, I'm well aware of Minecraft. It is a mainstay in our household as well. (laughs) Okay. So turns out Minecraft Camp was this company called ID Tech, which is like the global Mm -hmm. BMOF in terms of like providing camp. Sure. camps and, and STEM um, skill training and, and STEM fun type education, uh, it, primarily in, uh, in camp format. Um, and uh, I went uh, to see what this was all about one day because we'd enrolled the kids and, and they, they loved it. And uh, I was just shocked. I was like, wow, this is amazing. There's hundreds of kids here. This was at the Villanova campus where my kids were going. And uh, I was like, man, this is a great business because, of course, like, you know, having just paid the tuition for, the, for one week of camp, I thought this is a pretty nice business model. And thinking back to where we were living in Basel at the time, I was like, there's nothing like that going on here whatsoever. So I called the company and said, you guys need to expand internationally. I'm your guy. I'm going to make this happen for you. And they weren't quite ready to do that. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more later about how I failed to appreciate just what goes into developing a curriculum in, for a different language. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that is not to say programming language, but spoken language. Different, and, right. Uh, you've got three, well, right there within yeah. your five-mile yeah. radius. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, uh, but what I did do was license some of their online curriculum and started doing after-school classes with it. And it just kind of took off from there that's really was was where things started um uh and uh, that that's that's pretty much the, the the life story of how i got to be involved with tech labs today well there's two components to this that i think that are really important to to note is that one is that you have walked the walk in terms of loving technology from a kid but then even moving through it in different areas of, of, of your career, because like you said, you were in finance, but you were working for a software mm-hmm. company and then you have grown and, and, and you took a chance and moved to Chicago to, to try something new. And then you saw the way in which your children interacted with the tech when you came back. I do think that that's a pretty amazing that you picked up the phone to call ID tech and ask them because I've seen them for years and I, the part of me that um, found myself wanting to deviate a bit from that was I felt there wasn't enough female mm. focus in terms of, of creating content that also females from a female persona could identify with because, and it's not to say that all females don't like gaming because, because there are many that do, but not every, it's kind of like you said before, looking at tech from a different perspective than just gaming. And that often is what is shown in culture around coding computer science and and that initial sort of introduction to it, Um, which is why I've really, really enjoyed this conversation and you talking about the different facets of how you interacted with tech and essentially computer science around the use of data. And then ultimately, I am really, really was really excited about your story about the robot and how you saw the full picture, the whole holistic picture of them learning to code, build, debug, and you guys even debugging as instructors to figure out, oh my gosh, these things didn't print the way we thought they were going to. So tell me a little bit about how Tech Labs, uh, you've been in action for um, about four years now, or or maybe a few more years than that. How have you developed and changed and what are you offering now for the children in your area? Yeah. So when, when we started, um, 
yeah, we had, we had a pretty simple idea, which was um, to pick a theme, right? Generally, it had something to do with coding and mm-hmm. to really just try to expose the kids to coding, right? Um, we didn't have a really better idea or better developed idea than that. Um, and so what the experience for the kids and the instructors was like was we basically had um, a online uh, tutorial-based instructional system uh, that was fun. Like it, it used um, essentially like little cartoons that were built around the theme um, and a story theme. And then uh, as you de- went through the story, you were also developing coding skills, like for example, in Python or in HTML. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we found was that it's not sustainable, that wasn't sustainably engaging to the kids that we were working with. Right. Um, we, we really wanted, or maybe I wanted, I really wanted to have longer term relationships with the kids that I was working with than what was, um, uh, what the existing curriculums that we were working with was able to keep them interested in for, um, so, for example, with the, the, the online sort of kid with a screen uh, and a pair of headphones facing a computer uh, could do, like would keep a kid in the class probably for about a year at most, uh, where we would meet once a week. Um, and um, I, just, like, I just felt like the kids didn't really get like what was going on there. Sure, they would learn you know, what a variable was. And even today, like uh, in terms of like where we developed as far as the projects that we do, like I still say every day, like we really only teach three concepts. It doesn't matter whether you're six or you're 16, it's the same three concepts, which is data abstraction, right? Variables uh, and the like. We teach the repeatability of code, right? Which is functions and, uh, and, and, and that, that gives you the power of like thinking about code as like a machine, right? Once you write it once, you can use it over and over again. Um, data extraction functions uh, and uh, repeatability of code. What's the third one? Why am I blanking? I, do, I only say this like because 14 you, times. I know because you have to say it right now, but I literally have goosebumps because it's exactly yeah. what I say on a regular yeah. basis. That yeah. There's some core concepts that are that are repeated over and over yeah. again in any piece of computer science, coding, technological development, yeah. and, and variables and functions. Yeah. Loop, oh, I know loop. the last one. Yeah, and the last one is conditionality. If yep, then. conditions. Mm-hmm. If you know those three things, you're like 80% of the way home. I don't Absolutely. care what, what the language is. Like you can, you can pick up the little dialects of, of whether it's Python or Absolutely. C or, or Ruby or whatever. But it's those same three concepts are basically underlying all coding or development or uh, programming um, activity. Um, and Without so, a doubt. And yeah, once, you, so, once, you, once you master those, then you can do anything. And I, and I tell mm-hmm. that often to my students as well, which I'm sure is what you're saying to your kids. Like if you learn these concepts and learn Python, you can easily transfer your skills into something like Java, Visual yeah. Basic, C, C Sharp, whatever you choose that's of interest to you. And, and those three concepts are, when you really boil them down like that, they're, they're absent of any sort of like uh, male or female orientation and can be basically tailored as an educator uh, into whatever you need it to be to yes. engage 
boys and girls. Love it. Uh, Love that you just uh, said that. That's amazing. Yeah. And so that that's when we had that insight, that's when we started moving away from we're a coding club or we're just about coding and uh, Mm -hmm. no knock against the coding for the future as the title of your program because because we do plenty of coding and coding is a core part of what we do but uh, that's when we realized that like we need to reorient how we uh, engage kids and how we market these programs and how we deliver them as educators and so we, we led with how do we deliver these programs so what we always try to do now is actually to pick a theme that we think will be interesting to kids so right now we have our robotics programs, but we don't really talk about them in the context of robotics. We talk about them in the context of a global robotics competition uh, and uh, is, is one of our robots programs. The other one is, is in a very specific theme targeting older kids having to do with swarming and biomimicry behavior and mm-hmm. how robotics can be used to, to do that. And when you start talking about that, you'll, we've noticed that we get a much better mix of boys and girls and yeah. age groups in our classes. Correct. Um, as opposed to if we say, you know, you're going to be like working with uh, and tinkering for sure. If we start using words like that, it, we're going to skew boys. Uh, and uh, that's, that's not really what we're after. Um, and uh, so that, that's what's really helped us to grow as an organization and really most importantly, to be able to be as ambitious as we have been in terms of the projects that we undertake, like what I described to you in terms of the, that robots experience. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we, we'd, we'd not be able to have had that kind of learning experience as an organization if we only had five to six kids, for example, to work with. Like, there's a certain scale at which you can, it makes sense to buy your own 3D printer and go through that pain, sure. right? <laughs> and, oh, yeah, and it's not, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and that's not really going to work if you're like just like a small club, say, uh, in a school that was an early adopter of a 3D printer. Um, and, and then this is really where we try to develop the community around us of educators and to try to offer our programs to um, teach teachers um, or to like host uh, like meetups uh, for sharing ideas. Um, because if we, when we maintain that scale or even grow it of uh, interest and participation in a community wide, then we can undertake things like, okay, let's do a big 3d printing project, or let's start working Mm -hmm. with robots that can swarm, right? Like it doesn't really make sense to put a swarming robot. If you have like two kids that are down for that, right? Like it doesn't look cool when you're done, but if you have 20 of them, like we do sometimes or 15, like we just did 15 with a scout troop, then you, when the robots are moving around, it starts to look like when you see like, you know, like large swarming groups of birds in the sky, which is what we were trying right. to imitate with our programs. Um, and those kinds of ideas, like you can get people excited about, right? Um, a, across a large spectrum of uh, whether it's based on sex or age um, as children sure. and even adults, we do these programs with adults as well. Um, and that's really what I'm after is like to be able to do these big, ambitious, like cool ideas. Like, um, and that's where, that's where I think we are today. I, I'm not sure about where we will be next year, but like 
between now and the next 12 months in terms of like how to like engage uh, um, kids and institutions, educational institutions in STEM concepts, it has to do with work that's fundamentally collaborative and Mm -hmm. fundamentally involves large quantities of something, whether it's robots or large groups of people working in hackathons. And that's, I mean, may seem obvious, but that's why these programs are popular. Like people need that social element of it and COVID notwithstanding, right. Which is an added challenge now, but. uh, Well, yeah. I mean, that's the piece I think that's so great about our area of expertise and love is that it is very collaborative and more minds coming together help to create a very robust and fantastic piece of tech that's going to change the way you interact. I love that you mentioned that you're using those three uh, core concepts to help to drive your content and your curriculum and putting it out there for young people to see the, all the different elements of what's happening. And so that's at the core of what we want to talk about with this show, which will, which when I, so I want to talking about the name of coding the future, my idea around that is to think about not just in code, but how do we code the, how do we step through the next few decades and understanding at the core what computer science can do and help drive what we're going to be doing. So helping to code our way through the next few years and understanding that coding will be a part of it, being able to embrace all the different elements of computer science. And I love that you have made it something that people can relate to. That Mm. at the core is how we're going to make that change. So if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about what you're doing, can you give us um, some links or how do people connect with you on social media or or, or whatnot? Yeah, the easiest way, of course, is to visit our website, which is techlabs.ch. CH is the uh, uh, like the dot com of Switzerland. Uh, And uh, uh, we we can also be found on Facebook and Instagram uh, at techlabs.ch. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're also on, uh, I, I run, a a, a, a social stream also on LinkedIn, but that's more oriented towards, uh, activities that we do with adults. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then of course, uh, you can always uh, email us at info at techlabs.ch. Awesome. Joel, it's been incredible. You have shared so many wonderful insights. I think what you're doing is incredible. I th- taking that real world experience from what you have and transferring that into opportunities for young people to be exposed is is amazing. And I thank you for your time and sharing your expertise and your work with us in the audience. And I encourage you as my action item today to go to techlabs.ch and check out the work that Joel's doing because this is a really incredible opportunity for you to see how those of us that are walking the walk and talking about computer science are putting forth programming to help the next generation behind us see the joy that we have in computer science and STEM. And if you'd like to know more about the work that I do, you can always visit the .consulting.co or find out about my own nonprofit where we support middle school girls in computer science at dottyrosefoundation.org. Thank you again, Joel. Thank you everybody for joining us this week and we'll see you next time on Coding the Future.
Thank you so much for listening to Coding the Future. Please join your host, Dr. Sharon Jones, for another edition next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk then.